Lord, this morning we pray for Sharon and don't know all the current issues going on in her life, but just the ongoing needs that she has and protection and health and other issues. And just working, ministering in a a land that is not easy. Uh, We just pray that you continue to uphold her and sustain her, encourage her, strengthen her, enable her, and mainly use her as you see fit. And as was already prayed, that we are able to understand your word and see how not only it applied in the first century, but how it applies to us today, and that we may uh, be doers of your word rather than simply hearers. So we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get into uh, the book of Romans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll be in the book of Romans till 2028, I think. It's my estimate. It's almost about like 12th of never. That's right. Anybody that laughs is admitting their age. So, just, uh, we'll be looking at, actually, I'm going to look at verse 17, just as review, and then we'll get into verse 18. I don't think we'll get to verse 22, but who knows, might be possible. And just to give us the context real quickly, chapter 2, I think, begins a new section. It doesn't start in verse 1, it probably at least starts in verse 17, but probably somewhere in there, scholars kind of debate, because the, the name Jew isn't mentioned, well, it's mentioned, I think, what, in 13, somewhere in there. But anyway, I started in chapter 2, verse 1, I see some parallels with what Paul is doing with the Gentiles, laying out the predicament of at least a mindset, if not the Jewish people who had a self-righteous viewpoint. They felt like they had a right standing, at least, with God. And he needs to review kind of some basic principles on God's judgment, because he's condemning all of humanity in this first section in the book of Romans. So he lays out the principles of judgment, chapter 2, verses 2 through 16. We completed that last time. And now in verse 17 through 29, he's going to bring home the fact that the Jews, in fact, will be judged. They are guilty. They face that judgment that he laid out in the uh, verses from 2 to 16. And we won't complete that, but when we move into the next section... He anticipates protests from Jewish people saying, well, what about this? What about that? So he's going to answer those in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So we'll hopefully eventually get there. So he's going to prove in the outline here, prove the guilt of the Jews. And the first thing that he's going to point out is a failure of inconsistency. And that's the main theme that runs through verse 20, 24. They have these tremendous privileges. In fact, I think there's some parallels with our culture as well, because we have tremendous privileges as well, and we'll apply that in that way. And a summary of those verses, 17 through 24, or a chart of them, the whole section deals with a problem of inconsistency, We can divide it into three parts, actually. The first two deal with the privileges. He lays out all these privileges, and that's about as far as we'll get today. We might get into verse 21. And because of these tremendous privileges, 
that puts them in a position where they are more accountable for those, those privileges. So he's going to evaluate them and prove that they fail by pointing out their performance. In other words, their performance does not match their privileges. And as a result, in verses 23 and 24, it's going to end in a product that is not positive. The the God that they worship is, in fact, blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because they are living not much different from the Gentiles. Therefore, they stand condemned. So let's take a look at the personal privileges, verses 17 through 18. And by the way, I have divided it on your outline sheet into two parts. Personal, pertaining to Jewish people personally. And from that, that gives them privileges in terms of other people or non-Jewish people or people in general and primarily Gentiles. So the first part are personal and then privileges relating to others, verses 19 and 20. And it's a long sentence, typical of Paul. I try to put it all on one slide. And it actually goes further. It goes further beyond the question mark, but I stop it there because that's generally either a period or a question mark ends a sentence. So it goes all the way to at least the beginning of verse 21. But in actuality, logically, you could say it's a longer sentence. It has other questions attached to it as well. And we'll get to that in due time. So this is kind of the sentence, and we break it down by seeing, well, what is the essence of what he's talking about? Look for the first independent clause, and you don't find it till you get all the way down to verse 21. Yeah. It all begins with this if clause or conditional clause that has lots of parts in it. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will, and you could put if before all of those, and if you know his will, and if you approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and if you are confident, etc., etc., you get all the way down to the end of verse 20, all that kind of hangs together, it's one part of the sentence, and then he's getting to the point in verse 21, you, therefore, see the comma at the end of verse 20, you, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? He's bringing the knife, sticking it in, and he's going to start twisting. And this is the proof. In other words, he's going to bring to their understanding the fact that they are not living according to the Mosaic law, essentially. In fact, what he's going to deal with is what he talked about earlier concerning God's judgment based on the Mosaic law. So you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourselves? In other words... You are inconsistent, and he lays out the first inconsistency there. But we're not going to get, well, we might get that far, but if we we don't, we'll deal with the, the tremendous privileges. If all of these things are true, you remember what kind of a condition did we say that was in the Greek text, which means it assumes the premise, first-class condition. If you bear the name Jew, and you do, all right, and rely upon the law, and at least you say you do. In other words, he's assuming the premise. And if, in fact, you boast in God, and you say that you do at least, or at least you do boasting in God, and you know his will, etc., first-class condition, assuming 
And they would agree. They say, yes, yes, of course, of course, of course. Yes, yes, this is who we are. This is our privilege. And their conclusion was, therefore, God's on our side. God and us, are, we are okay. We have covenants, all these privileges. But he's going to come down in verse 21 and say, yeah, but you're inconsistent with the privileges that God has granted you. So it starts with that if clause. But if first-class condition, you bear the name Jew, and in that culture, this was a, a name of pride and respect, and they looked down on others, thinking they were better than any other class of people. In fact, everybody else thrown into one class of Gentile or non-Jew, but bearing the name Jew, that elevated you to tremendous privilege, and in fact, it did but it didn't mean that they had an automatic access to God. In fact, they totally overlooked the Mosaic law and the teaching of the law. The word Jew, I was kind of rushing through that passage last time at the end there, occurs almost 200 times in the New Testament, and it's used in, in a variety of ways, you might say, and they're only slightly different. One usage that occurs about 10 or so times refers to Jesus himself 196 times. It refers to Jesus himself and primarily in reference to Pilate, who refers to him as, you know, you say you're king of the Jews. And then also it also mentions that that was the title that was put on uh, the cross there, king of the Jews. Well, the same word is used of Jesus, and obviously Jesus was Jewish, but acknowledging the Jewish people that had a king over them, so in that sense it's used in the next major way as Israelites, and very commonly, primarily in the Gospel of John and in the book of Acts, it's used in reference to Israelites. In other words, descendants of Abraham that were part of the nation of Israel. So I'd add ethnic connotations, in other words, bloodline connotations, but it also had nationalistic connotations. In other words, they were part of a community that at one time was a nation, and in those days, a nation, but under the, the rule or thumb of the Roman Empire. So they're Israelites in Judea, now, when you get to the book of Acts, you have some others that are referenced and from other regions, we call that what? Anyone remember what we call those outside of Judea? Remember the word that starts with the D? Oh, diaspora. Yeah, the diaspora. So Israelites in the diaspora. Now, these would not be Israelites that are of the nation of Israel, but they would be of the bloodline of Abraham. In other words, they would trace their bloodline back to Abraham. So they would be Jewish in that sense, not necessarily national. So you have a slight distinction. Betty? Did they use the word Hebrew? Yes, that was another word that was used to describe themselves. Hebrews, yeah. And that emphasized more their, their language. In other words, that was the language they spoke. Yeah, and their culture. But this word... Eudeos has more reference to nationality and bloodline. And like I said, the first group of usages is, is Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. You knew that, right? 
So, and identified as king of the Jews. And it's also used of Jewish leaders in some contexts more narrowly, and particularly those passages that refer to opposition of Christ or conflicts in the Gospels. And interestingly, it doesn't occur as many times in the Synoptic Gospels. It occurs mainly in reference to Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels. It occurs very frequently in the Gospel of John and in the book of Acts. In fact, the majority of them in those two books. And there's a significant number in Paul as well. So, wait a minute. So, they, as they opposed Christ in his life, Yes. they were referred to as the mm-hmm. Jews. As the Jews. And yet, he was dubbed by Pilate the Jews. Mm-hmm. It must have been a, quite a slap. I mean, here they were yep. having him executed. Yep. Yeah, it was mockery, certainly. Mockery to the Jews? To both, yeah, but primarily to Christ. But sometimes, and and it's subtle, but it can be used in that more narrow sense, not including every Jew, because there was a significant number of Jews that believed in Christ that would not be included in these Jewish leaders that opposed Christ. And that would be true during the life of Christ, but it would also be true during the book of Acts, where the early church was opposed by primarily Israelites, but predominantly the leadership, but not the people necessarily in general. So these are just some usages out of the 196 times it occurs in the New Testament. So last time, just quick review, we saw some of the privileges in verse 17. They had a distinguished heritage, very distinguished not only amongst themselves, but even some Gentiles recognized that it was a privilege to be called Jew. They bore the name Jew. But they trusted in their bloodline and not in a relationship with God. Much like today, sometimes people think, well, I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm Christian. And they have nothing to do with the the Bible or have no spiritual uh, conversion. And some people assume that, or children that are raised in a Christian home sometimes assume, well, my parents are Christian, so genetically I'm Christian. But it doesn't work genetically. The Jews almost assume that it did work genetically. They're of the bloodline. So it's automatic, and that's what Paul is pointing out. It's not automatic. So the second thing, they rely upon the law. We looked at that last time, and that in this context... Same law that he's talked about it before, the Mosaic law, Mosaic covenant. So they had special revelation. God gave them on Mount Sinai revelation that was unique to the nation of Israel. And some aspects of the Mosaic law and covenant had application to them as Israelites, uh, part of the nation. And some of those aspects of the Mosaic law are national. that specified every aspect of life. Even the aspect in terms of diet, for example, but other areas as well, and particularly the uh, sacrificial system. So they had special revelation, but they trusted in possessing it rather than doing it. That's kind of a common theme in this passage and other passages in the New Testament. So they had special revelation. And Jesus points this out in John 5.45, but do you think I will accuse you before the Father? And then he answers it. 
Your accuser is Moses. And then he identifies the main problem on whom your hopes are set. In other words, you set your hope on possessing the words of Moses, the law, the Pentateuch. In this context, when he refers to Moses, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible. And yes, they were given the law. It was just their constitution. But they depended on it without considering the need to respond to it. So Jesus kind of points that out. And the third thing in verse 17 is they boast in God. In other words, God is on our side. Our team has God. You guys don't have God. You have these false gods, you other people. So boasting in God, they had ultimate access to God. And they did. This is a privilege. All of these are privileges, and all of them are true, but they're distorted. They're distorted in the thinking of the Jew. They trusted that God was theirs alone. In other words, we own God. Rather than God owning them, they viewed God as their possession. And they didn't think in terms of a relationship. We also have in Jeremiah kind of allusions, and maybe Paul is alluding to Jeremiah in this context, and Jews might have been reminded of Jeremiah 9.24. Let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. In other words, has a personal relationship. Not ownership of me, but knowing him in a personal way. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness. In other words, I'm the God that over is over the nation of Israel and has relationship, expresses loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. He delights in us knowing him in a personal way. So this would be something that the Jews would have probably known or thought about. And when Paul says, you boast in God, it might have reminded them of Jeremiah 9.24. And then in verse 18, that's where we ended up last time, we have another privilege. And, and you can go back to verse 17, if, and if you know his will, They would boast in that as well, knowing God's will. They had the word. Many of them were very devoted to understanding it. They would read it. They would know it. They would know the principles that God had laid out. So they have essential knowledge, you might say. Tremendous privilege, knowing God's will, having very specific instructions concerning this is what God desires. And the Mosaic Law is extremely explicit, very detailed, lots of instruction. This is what God desires. This is how he wants the sacrifices to be made. Lots of detail. In fact, so much detail, it's hard to read. Like books of Leviticus, you kind of go to sleep reading it because there's so much detail there. But it's designed to give them insight and specific insight so there's no question. Not Glenn Riddle. Not Glenn Riddle. He didn't go to sleep reading Leviticus? No. Good. The rest of us. (laughs) All right. So these are tremendous privileges. And it was a privilege. It's a privilege to know God's will. While they trusted in the knowing again rather than the doing, that's a tendency in human nature. That's a tendency amongst us. We'll apply that in a moment. James says, 4.17, James 4.17, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
So sin is not those things that we overtly do, but it includes knowing, okay, this is the right thing to do, but not following through and doing it. So that condemns everyone. I mean, there's lots of things that we know we should do, but fail to do them. In fact, you can be, become overwhelmed with all of those. Those are called sins of omission. And those are just as real as sins of what? Commission. So James kind of condemns us. By the way, James is written very early in church history when the church was predominantly Jewish. So it has a very heavy Jewish flavor to it. So it's talking about observance of God's principle. And verse 18, we have another one. And know his will and approve the things that are essential. What does that mean or what does that relate to? That's another privilege. Number five, they understood moral distinctions. They had a sharp understanding of right and wrong. They had a sense of God's absolutes and they approved of them. They had a sense of what God had specified in terms of the entire moral realm and they could make sharp distinctions. In fact, they were known for debating the minutiae, even so much so that they overemphasized some of the minutiae. Remember, Jesus condemned them for that. And omitting, in fact, even Micah does that as well, They and they overlooked some of the more weightier things, in other words, the more important things. So that's a tendency of human nature as well. Moral distinctions, or the word essentials in the biblical text. And their failure is they trusted, again, in knowing but not obeying. That's the main theme throughout all of these. So these are tremendous privileges. And then the the verse concludes, being instructed out of the law, kind of summarizing all of them. These all come from the law. The law instructs concerning access to God. The law instructs concerning moral principles, moral absolutes. The law teaches concerning God's will. All of those aspects, all of those privileges come out of the law, and you can derive them from the Old Testament. In fact, you can derive all of that from uh, the first five books, the Pentateuch, which is called the Law of Moses. And even more specifically, you can derive all of this from the Mosaic Covenant. So being instructed out of the law is simply kind of modifying everything that comes before that's a participle for those of you that like grammar. So let's apply these to our culture. And first of all, on this slide, I'm going to apply it on a kind of a broad basis, if you will, applicable to the entire culture that would include both unbelievers and believers. If Paul were writing to our culture today, You could say that uh, we have a distinguished heritage as well as, what, U.S. citizens. And it's unfortunate today that there are a lot of people that don't appreciate the heritage that we have and don't appreciate the Constitution that godly men put together in the founding of our country. And it's even a shame, even in the sports realm, that there's disrespect paid to the flag in our country, and all of that. We have a distinguished heritage, but much like the Jewish community of the first century, that also makes us accountable as a culture, as a nation, as a people. 
So we have a distinguished heritage, and if we tear that down, it's possible God may allow some to tear it down to the detriment of the whole culture. And to some extent, we're seeing that. We're suffering from consequences of that disrespect. So we have a tremendous heritage, not as elevated as the nation of Israel in the first century and throughout world history, but we have a heritage as well. We also have access to the complete Bible. The nation of Israel in the first century only had the Old Testament and predominantly the Mosaic Law. We have the revelation of the New Testament, and that has been proclaimed openly and broadly throughout our country since our founding, and, well, even before that. We've had access to it. So a tremendous privilege that we have as American citizens. When any of you travel to foreign countries, you see that there's a lack of that. In fact, every country that I go see outside the U.S., people oftentimes, particularly well, the believers, are hungry for the word. And even sometimes unbelievers unknowingly are searching and hungering for something that's not as easily accessible as it is here. You can put it on your phones, your iPhones. You can carry it in your pockets. You can put it on your iPads. All kinds of access to the, the Bible itself. And in that, we have access to the creator and judge of the universe, our culture. Romans 1 says, therefore, there is no excuse. They're without excuse. So we have tremendous privilege. We have essential knowledge. We have access to the gospel message. It's proclaimed. Now, unfortunately, sometimes it's a little distorted, but people have free access to God himself through the gospel message. This is broad-based. And because of that, we have moral distinctions, and the main one is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Unfortunately, some churches distort that and make it cloudy in terms of how people come into a relationship. So it's important to clearly spell out what the gospel message is, that man is lost and in need of what God has provided, and the only means by which we come into that relationship is by trusting what God has done, not what we attempt to do, and in that we have salvation. So our nation has tremendous privilege, but we can apply it even closer to home, and let's include, and more specifically, the believer here, Same categories that we have in terms of Israel. What's our distinguished heritage? Besides U.S. citizenship and all the others that we looked at in terms of the broader general. How does the Bible in some passages, not too many, but in a few passages, describe us? Grafted in. Grafted in. That's a good phrase. Grafted into Israel. Okay, so we have the privileges of Israel. We're called saints, right? Now, that's distorted in our culture. Some people think that's a very elevated position. Well, it is, but we are declared righteous. We are declared sinless. It doesn't mean that by experience we no longer have it, but from God's perspective, we are viewed as separated. That's what saints are, separated from sin and perfectly righteous. We have the righteousness of Christ. So we're called saints. Citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. That's good. In fact, that's good in the analogy that we're drawing here. We are 
citizens already, and nothing can remove us from that. Any other uh, heritage that we have? By being in Christ, by virtue of trusting in Christ, we have all of the heritage of Christ. Heirs, so we have uh, something even in the future. Some of it is accessed here and now, but most of it is in the future. Heirs, heirship, child of the king. Exactly, very good. I kind of summarized it as true Jew, so it includes all of these aspects and more. We are true Jews, so we have tremendous privilege. Does that make us accountable? Mm, More so, right? And we have special revelation. We have the Holy Spirit to enable us to understand the Old Testament. And in fact, the unbeliever has access to the Word, but he does not have the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit until he trusts in uh, Jesus Christ. Now, he has the convicting work of the Spirit to tell him that he is lost, and he has the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to make him realize that his, the only solution to his lostness is trusting in Christ. But he doesn't understand the principles of Scripture but we as believers have access to the Holy Spirit because he indwells the believer. In fact, that's one of the distinctions between a believer and unbeliever, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So we have illumination. When we go to the Word of God, it's not a closed book. We need to look to the Holy Spirit, trusting in him, that he may help us to understand. And that's why we pray at the beginning that the Spirit would illumine us as we look into his Word. So that's a tremendous privilege that God has granted the believer. And we have ultimate access. We call God Father, a close relationship. In fact, we can cry out Abba, Father. We can cry out Daddy, if you will, because we have that close relationship that uh, he has established. So we have ultimate access to Father, who in fact is creator and is ultimate judge as well. But because Christ bore all of the judgment we deserve on the cross, we don't face him as judge in terms of eternity. Now, there is a bema where we will give an account of our Christian walk, but it's not in terms of eternal destiny. It has nothing to do with heaven and hell, but it does have something to do with the millennial kingdom in terms of positions that we will occupy there. But we have access to the Father, and we have essential knowledge. We have the complete will of God, because we have the complete oracles of God that are revealed to us. And in fact, God has even given us a glimpse in some detail of what he's going to do even in the future. We call that eschatology. So we have a complete revelation of God's will. Tremendous privileges, tremendous opportunities. And we have moral distinctions that, and I'm kind of moving this further ahead, which gives us a privilege in terms of doing what God is doing on earth and being used as his instruments to accomplish what he's doing. And this is sometimes where we fall short. Now, we can fall short in all, all of these in terms of the privilege. We don't live sometimes as true Jews. In other words, in the knowledge of what we have, sometimes we're grumbling like the Jews did in the, uh, the wilderness. We're not appreciating all the blessings and all the privileges that we have. 
And sometimes we don't trust in the Holy Spirit to teach us from his word. We neglect getting into it. And sometimes we break that relationship with the Father and need to confess sin in order to restore that. And sometimes we don't obey just like the Jews didn't. But we're certainly accountable to, to do that. And there are consequences. It doesn't have anything to do with eternity, but there are still consequences as well. And probably the main failure is our failure to minister to others the things that God has given us. And that kind of moves into the next section that Paul's going to deal with in terms of the privileges that the Israelites had and the implications of that in terms of the Gentile world. So on the outline here, 19 and 20, we have privileges that relate to others. God gave them tremendous privileges, but it was not to be self-absorbed. It was not to create in their thinking, we are a better people. They were no different than Gentiles. Yes, they were privileged, but that implied that God had a plan. He gave them privileges in order to have an impact on the rest of the world. When God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, there were a variety of nations. There were many nations. And what God is doing is he's calling one individual to himself for the purpose of through that one individual and his descendants, he enters into the covenant with Abraham. Part of that covenant is to do what from the very beginning? What is the Abrahamic covenant in terms of other people? They were to be a what? Blessing. A blessing to everyone else. And that was the main purpose of the nation of Israel. And that's specified very clearly in a couple of passages that we'll look at. So this is what he's talking about. They had special privileges, but it was for the benefit of others, not simply for them as a people or a bloodline. So in verse 19, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind. Now they're aware of these things. They boasted in these things. In fact, what does Jesus do with the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23? Remember what he does? Whitewash too. Yeah, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because what do they do with the blind? They're blind guides. They are blind, but they're guides of the blind that are blind. <laughs> what good is a blind guide, right? Well, they led him into darkness of light. That's right. They Yes. Very good. That's in Matthew chapter 23. That's why he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And how does he phrase it? Uh, you, well, whitewashed tombs, but also in terms of leading them. Remember how he says that? Both fall in the ditch. The what? Both fall in the ditch. That's right. <laughs> Both fall in the ditch. Okay, guide to the blind. That was a privilege. They were to be guides to the blind, and they took that position, but in fact, they were blind themselves because they were not applying what God had given them. Betty? So all of these things in that verse, all these things of living and teaching the immature, really they're focused on their own people. Israel. They're not looking at the world. Yeah, exactly. Is there a guide to blind of their own people? Teach them the law. No, no. He's talking about, I think he's going beyond them. In other words, you have this position... This great position, but it should it should fulfill what God has called you to do is to reach the Gentile and to be a, a guide to 
The blind is an allusion to the Gentiles here. But what they were doing is because the Gentiles really didn't exist or something. No, they did less exist. Than, less than what they wanted to reach out to. I mean, they didn't witness. No. They were. That's the problem. Uh-huh. That's the problem is they were not doing what God had called them to do as a people. He gave them the privileges in order to have an impact on the world. And I'm going to give you a couple of passages here. So they have these unique privileges of giving people insight, leading people that didn't have the revelation they had. They're blind. They're blind to spiritual things. They were given insight into these spiritual things. The blind is an allusion to those that didn't have that revelation, and they were to guide them, and they were failing in that. Here's a good passage, Deuteronomy 4. And remember, this is even before they're a nation. They're in the wilderness. Deuteronomy was written at the end of the wilderness experience of the nation of Israel. They're not even a nation yet. They haven't entered the land. They're a people that have been united with the experiences of Egypt and the Exodus and 40 years of wilderness experience. But what does it take to be a nation? There are three aspects. Well, what? Well, that's the third aspect is the land. Common people. They were a common people. They had a common constitution, the second thing, at Sinai. That's the law. But they didn't have a land. Deuteronomy is preparing them to enter into the land. And in Deuteronomy, even before they're a nation, he spells out what he intends for the nation of Israel. He's referring to the law, and this is what they were to do. They were to keep it, obey it. Not just boast in it, not just memorize it, not just teach it, but what? Keep it, do it, all right? So keep and do them, in other words, the statutes and the uh, stipulations of the law. And then he's going to expand for that in your wisdom and your understanding. In other words, if you are not only knowing the word, but applying it, it's going to give you wisdom and it's going to give you understanding, but you have to apply it. In the sight of the who, the peoples. In other words, all the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, they're going to look at your lifestyle. They're going to look at you, and they're not going to read a Bible. The only thing they're going to be able to read is your life. And what does he say? If, in fact, you do this in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. There to be a light to the blind. And now the blind, all they can see is your life. They can't see the specifics of the Mosaic law. So it's to be visible, it's to be lived out. And they're going to say, this is a great nation, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God? The key to it is that relationship with God. And it was supposed to be visible. And then he goes on, so near to it as the Lord our God, whenever we call on him, in other words, as we depend on him and trust in him, it's going to be visible to the world. Verse 8, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law? There's not a law in existence that's better than the Mosaic law. And people are going to recognize it because it regulates how they live. And if they live according to it, it's going to outshine any other law code that was ever in existence. 
And then he closes here as the whole, this whole law, which I am setting before you today. In other words, the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy is a second giving of a law. That's what Deuteronomy means. Namas, Deutero, two or second. <coughs> Namas law, a second law, second giving of the law. It's a giving of the law again to the second generation. That's why you have the Ten Commandments repeated in Deuteronomy. This is 40 years later after Sinai. It's a second giving of the law. And he's saying this whole law, which I am setting before you today, Moses is spelling it out. What should it do? It gave the Jews tremendous privilege, but it was to have an impact in the world all around them. See that? It's laying out their purpose. Why he created them as a people. Why he saved them. And then verse 19 and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light, this adds to it, a light to those who are in darkness. In fact, it's almost like poetry. You have one line, then you have a synonymous line, synonymous poetry, almost Hebrew poetry here. So you have a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Almost the same idea there. So they had the privilege, unique privileges, and more specifically, they were to illumine. They were to be a light. Now, how can we apply that to us? What are we to be? What does Jesus call us? You are the light of the world, believers. They should see how we live and see a difference. Not just what we say, but how we live. And that was a failure in the first century. So it's for others. Here's another passage that lays out their purpose. Isaiah 6, 7. Now, this is later in their history when the nation is crumbling. And Isaiah is predicting the fall of the nation because they failed to do what Moses specified in Deuteronomy. What does he say? I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to whom? To the people. They were to have a relationship with the people. And as a light to the nations. This is their purpose. Now he's predicting way in the future when it's going to be true. There's going to come a time when Israel will, in fact, be a light. It's even future from our time. All right? You'll be a light to the nations to open blind eyes. See the parallelism. Paul is probably alluding to this passage itself in Romans chapter 2. To bring out prisoners from the dungeon. In other words, people are locked up spiritually. They're to bring people out of bondage. To bring out prisoners from dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. People locked up, if you will. Spiritually. What, what most of our uh, missionary works. Yes. All of this. I mean, we as a church on this. Um, I know that we don't replace his um, but this on. Well, the same principles have been reissued to the church. In other words, Isaiah is to Israel. But if you find in the New Testament, what's the Great Commission? The Great Commission to the church in Matthew chapter 28 is we are to take, you know, make disciples. How do you do that? Well, you lead them to Christ, but then you teach them both Old Testament and New Testament and show them how to walk. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that we are the light of the world, we are the salt, we are the light and salt. So what he has done is recommissioned the church because Israel failed 
And in that recommissioning, he has given us basically the same same mission. But when he restores Israel, Israel will take on their original purpose. So there's another passage for you. And by the way, these aren't the only ones, but these are two from uh, the Old Testament. A corrector of the foolish. All of these are allusions to the Gentile. They're blind. They're in darkness. They're foolish. And these are common phrases that the Jews of the first century would have used. All those foolish Gentiles. Oh, they're in darkness. Those blind Gentiles. These are words they would use. And what Paul is doing here is he's bringing their own words, their own language, alluding to some of those Old Testament passages. And then in verse 21, he's going to say, what about you? I mean, you're, you're no different than them. You're blind. You're, you need correction. You're in darkness. And that's the whole point there. The corrector of the foolish. They have privileged opportunities to minister to these people. Teacher of, of the immature. More phrases. So they have life answers. They should know how to live life before a holy God. So at least four major privileges here. And then the last part of the verse Having, and it summarizes again, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In other words, all of this is derived from the law. But it's not to be held as a possession that is a possession of privilege. It is to be utilized in reaching out to a lost world. And similarly to today, we can apply the scriptures to us today. And just a last little part here, we'll close here. These are the privileges through verse 20, but they're inconsistent in that their performance doesn't match the privilege and the opportunities that God has given them. And we'll start off in verse 21 next week, the performance of the Jews, and the first failure is to apply Scripture. That's the starting point, being doers of the Word, and that's where we can apply it as well. That's where we start. In other words, not just learning it, not just attending Bible study, not just taking notes, but actually looking at those notes and saying, how does this impact me today? All right? And now he's going to bring it home, and we'll just read it, and then we'll pick up in verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? Series of questions. These series of questions are somewhat, what do you call them, rhetorical? Are these rhetorical? Is that the proper classification? They're not asking for an answer, but they're to bring to the surface where they're at. It's like a father dealing with a child. Did you break the lamp? The father knows that the kid broke the lamp because the pieces are there and his fingerprints are all over it. It's not for information. Paul's not wondering. He doesn't need an answer. He's bringing these questions so that they will come to the realization, uh uh-oh, No, this applies to me, and I'm convicted, and eventually he wants them to to realize they need to trust in the Messiah, the Messiah that the nation put on the cross. So he's going to ask a series of questions. You who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? And then we go on into the other verses as well. Series of questions. See how it all hangs together and see how it applies in the first century? And most importantly, how does it apply to you and I? Closing thought here, the greater the privilege, we are privileged. 
We have the same privileges as Israel, but we have greater expectation as well. Who wants to close for us? But our great Heavenly Father, we're so blessed to have your word, to have the privilege as the Jews had of being given your word, being taught it. We ask for your grace and help and strength this week that walk in the way that we should go, that you have illuminated for us. We humbly acknowledge that we can only do that as you empower us, train us, and teach us. We thank you for this. Amen.